I was joking with Tanner earlier. It's holiday. It's Labor Day, if you don't know. And I told Tanner I think it would be pretty cool if he delivered a baby on Labor Day. And he said that he has. So (laughs) there you go. Genesis uh, 28 is where we're going to be most of the time. We're going to start in Genesis 26. Just a few more weeks left in Genesis before we'll move on. We're going to go to 1 Peter after uh, we finish Genesis. It won't take us two years to get through 1 Peter. Um, but this has been a good book. And even as I've started preparing for 1 Peter, there's a lot of things in Genesis. If we can get that down, understand that beginning book of the Bible, so much of that lays a foundation for so much of the rest of the Bible that it's been uh, helpful for me at least having preached through that and I hope it's been uh, helpful and beneficial for you too. What we're going to see happen in, in these verses that we're about to cover is is Jacob has come to, to realize that his death is imminent, um, that it's coming quickly and so he begins to kind of prepare those around him. He's going to bless a few people in this passage and kind of set his life up for like, okay, this is what it's going to look like after I die and after I pass away. And so I wanted to bring and show, because this is, uh, for me, probably one of the most special books that I own, um, and you've never read it. Nobody's ever read it. I'm the only person in the world who's read all the way through this, except besides my mom. Um, and what it is, is when my dad got cancer, it's a book that just asks questions. And so you can see... Uh, my dad hand wrote all of these answers to these questions in here. And, and so I, I tell people often that I'm very blessed in the way that my dad passed away. It wasn't in a car crash. It wasn't something that was sudden and quick. It was a slow two years of cancer. And so he was able to do handwritten notes and uh, newspaper articles and books like this that for me and for my brother, he, he gave my brother and I 18-year-old birthday presents, and he died when I was 10 just preparing that legacy and passing those things on because he knew that death was coming for him. And so thinking of his family, I I have outlived my father. I'm older than my dad ever was. And it it blows my mind to think of thinking about your family and walking through those things at the end of your life. But the reality that we see in the Bible and the reality that we know from our own experience is that none of us will avoid death, that it comes for all of us. And so what we see in this passage, and what we're going to dive into after I pray, is that this is a reality that Jacob is facing. That he's thinking back on his life, and and he's not as as bitter as he was in the last passage, but he's much more optimistic now, and he's kind of setting some things right, and then when he passes, it will continue on. So uh, let's pray, and then we will just dive into this text. Father, we thank you for today. Help us to not take it for granted. We're not promised another breath. We're not promised another moment. We're not promised another day. We're just promised you. Help us to be faithful in the time that you've given us. Help us to live our lives out in ways that reflect your gospel, your good news to so many people around us. Help us to recognize the opportunities that you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to set the the context real quick before we dive in. Um, We've we've transitioned. We've seen, I mean, almost all of Genesis. We've walked through from, I mean, think way back two years ago when it was Genesis 1 in the beginning. That's how the book starts. 
We've come all the way now past all of the patriarchs. Jacob is the last patriarch. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then there's nation forms outside of the God of Jacob. If you remember, Jacob's name's changed to Israel. And it's this nation of Israel that's going to form an Egyptian captivity. And so now the way Moses is finishing this book under the guidance of the Holy Spirit is... God is showing him how the Israelites end up in Egypt and how they end up in captivity. And ultimately, the reason is God sent them there. There's this famine that takes place. Joseph, through all of these circumstances of his life, ends up being the one who is distributing the food in the famine. His family comes back. His brothers have grown in the Lord over the seventeen or over the 20 years that he's been imprisoned, and in, in, not in prison, but in Egypt, and so there's this this growth that we've seen, this progression in in all of these people in the Lord, and then they come to Egypt. They're given the good land, the land of Goshen, where they can settle. It's on the east side of Egypt, so they're closer to Israel. They're closer to the promised land than they would have been if they'd settled on the other side of Egypt. Uh, everybody else we saw last chapter, everybody else, the famine's still hurting them. They have to go back to Joseph, and they end up selling all of their cattle and all of their land and even themselves to the nation of, of Egypt so that they can get food. And so now Egypt owns not just all the land and not just all the cattle. Egypt owns its own citizens. It's just become this political powerhouse because of this famine and because of the leadership of Joseph in it. But what we saw was the Israelites didn't have to go back to Joseph for food. At least we're not told they did. They're not sold. Like God separates them and, and secures them in the land of Goshen. And so for the Israelites who just left Egypt that Moses is writing this to as they're wandering in the wilderness, this is such a weird story for them. They're thinking, you're telling me at one point the people who enslaved us that we were not enslaved and they were enslaved back in, in time. And so it kind of continues down now. Uh, where we get to verse 28 is where the story picks up. This is Genesis 47, 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. And bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So just some some interesting things. Jacob recognizes and can feel like my time is coming to an end. Uh, my life is ending. So he calls Joseph and they do this weird promise where Joseph sticks his hand under his thigh, which is awkward. And it's a weird way for us to read this, but it's this oath that Joseph's making. We've seen it happen with Isaac and Abraham. We saw it happen with Jacob and Isaac. And now we're seeing it happen with Jacob and uh, Joseph and Jacob. And it's this oath where you stick your hand under their thigh, and it's like a pinky promise that you just aren't going to break. It's more than a pinky promise, and, and there's some symbolism there. That's Joseph saying, I'm going to uphold your way. I'm going to honor you. I'm not going to bury you in the land of Egypt, and instead I'll bury you in the land of our fathers, which we remember is by the Oak of Mamre. That's where Abraham and Sarah are buried. That's where Isaac and Rebekah is buried. And that's where Leah is buried. Verse, uh, chapter 48, verse 1. And after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, 
and was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come, and Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. I want to pause here because there's some things that are setting the table for us for what's about to happen in this text. So apparently Jacob leaves, and then they're like, hey, no, like he is really ill. In um, Springfield, Colorado, where's where my, that's like where a group of the Moors resided. And so when my grandpa was sick and was about to pass away, my aunt worked at the hospital, and I'll never forget, we were there, I was the closest, I lived in Texas, and I was the closest one to him, it was two hours from Springfield from there, that's how far up north the panhandle goes. Uh, We just skipped over Oklahoma and went straight into Colorado, and that's kind of the way I think the world should work. Uh, But grandpa was sick, he was ill, and so I would go visit him every couple of days, and then I get a a call from my Aunt Sandy, he's like, no, he's really kind of taking that turn. You know, if if you've been around death, you know what I'm talking about. You're sick for a while, and there comes a point at the end of the life where it's like, no, like, this is where it's going to happen now. And so I remember going in there, and, and they wheel in this cart that's filled with snacks, and it's filled with drinks. And in my mind, I went, this is such a a sweet and a kind thing that they're doing for our family. And I look over, and my Aunt Sandy is just hysterical in tears. And I'm like, what is going on? And Aunt Sandy had worked at the hospital, and she said they only wheel the cart in when you're not supposed to leave the room anymore because he's going to go that quick. And so that's what's happening with Joseph here is they summon Joseph, and they say, you're not going to want to leave Jacob anymore. He's turned very, very ill. There's not much of his life that's left. One of the things that's interesting with this passage is pay attention to the order of Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is the oldest son of Joseph. Ephraim is the second oldest son. And so Joseph grabs them. They go into Jacob's room, and we're told that Jacob summons his energy so they can sit up in bed. Now listen to verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So there's a lot of interesting things that's happening here. Jacob summons his strength to look at Joseph, this son that he thought he'd lost, now he's come back, and now he sees his grandsons there. And Jacob recalls this moment in his life that we remember if we've walked through Genesis. It's this time at Luz. Luz is another name for Bethlehem or Bethel, where God meets him and God blesses Jacob. And if we look back, this is when Jacob was fleeing from God. Not freeing from Isaac when he had deceived Isaac in his old age and taken the blessing from his brother, which was his, but not his. And it was that weird kind of sin, sin, sin all over the place that made it uh, kind of muddy waters. Now Jacob is fleeing from there, and the Lord appears to him at last and says, I'm going to be with you. Behold. And he gives him the same covenant. He reaffirms the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and now he reaffirms that covenant with Jacob. I'm going to be, make you fruitful and multiply you. 
I'm going to give your offspring land, and you're going to be a blessing to bless. That's the threefold promise of the covenant. And what we recognize is Jacob's really the only one of the patriarchs that God said you're going to have more than just one set of kids. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob kind of explodes, and he has all of these sons now. And we'll see that in the 400 years they're in Egypt, they really explode. And so it's Jacob at the end of his life pulling up all of his strength just to sit up in the bed when he sees his long-lost son who's coming in there, and he's just recalling his life and how the Lord has saved him. These are sweet moments for him where he's like, this is where God saved me. At this moment when I was coming out and fleeing, this is where God said, I'm covenanting with you. And then Jacob says, and look at your two grandsons, my my grandsons. Did you catch the order? Ephraim and then Manasseh, the youngest and then the oldest. But Jacob also says, they're going to be mine. I'm going to adopt them so that my inheritance now goes straight to them. There's a couple things happening there. Uh, it's kind of Jacob's way of giving Joseph a double inheritance. If both of your kids get one-twelfth of the inheritance, then Joseph is going to end up with more. But it's also, if you know the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph is not a tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh are. It's Jacob passing on this blessing to bless others to these two grandkids. And then in a sweet moment for Jacob, which we don't have many of, he recalls God saving him. He recalls, uh, he adopts his grandsons and gives them this blessing. And then did you catch the next thing that comes to his mind? Rachel, who had died years ago, and it's as if Jacob at the end of his life is, is lamenting a little bit that, that she didn't get buried at the Oak of Mamre. She had to get buried over in Ephrath. That's Joseph's mom. That's Ephraim and Manasseh's grandma. Like it's all of these emotions, all of these thoughts, all of these memories are welling up into Jacob at this time. Verse 8. And so when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knee and bowed himself to his, and his face to the earth. There's, there's a lot going on here too. We, we look up and it's kind of odd, right? Like Jacob had just adopted Ephraim and Manasseh kind of, right? He's about to die. So it's just like a legal adoption where they're going to get the inheritance. And then he looks up and he's like, who are those two kids? And we see his eyesight's bad, but it's this way of having this conversation. And Joseph replies, these are my sons that God has given me. And so Jacob says, bring them in. I'm going to bless them. This meant a lot in this culture. Remember when when Jacob blessed Pharaoh, I said the greater one always would bless the weaker or the lesser one. And so Jacob is now wanting to send this blessing onto these boys. Remember, it's the blessing that, that Jacob tried to steal from Esau. 
And it's so interesting at the end of Jacob's life that he kind of looks like Isaac, doesn't he? The reason he was able to swap out the blessing from Esau was because Isaac's eyes were dim. And so remember, he dressed up like a rugged man. He put goat's hair on his arm, and he cooked the right meal, and it was uh, deceived Isaac because Isaac's eyes are dim. And now we see Israel's eyes are dim as he's about to bless his kids. And it's this sweet moment where they're brought near and they're hugging and, and, and they're crying. And, and you can imagine just through tears that Israel looks at Joseph and he says, I never thought I would see you again. But not only do I get to see you again, I get to bless and hold and kiss and hug my grandkids. I get to see your offspring. And then there's this other weird to us it's weird where Joseph's like takes the kids off of his knee and we're like why are they on your knee this is a weird place and he bows himself but it's this ritual if you're going to be blessed if you're going to get the inheritance then you would sit on the knees and they would have the blessing it's it's all of this cultural stuff and so what happens is Joseph now bows himself to the ground down to the earth as a way to honor his father Jacob verse 13 so Joseph took them both check the order Ephraim in his right hand, Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and he said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Let, let us pause because this is a, a weird kind of thing that's going on. It, it seems like Jacob is being Jacob again, doesn't it? It feels like Jacob's being deceptive again. Joseph intentionally sets up the sons so that the younger son is going to get the blessing from the right hand, which is important in this culture. The right hand is the hand that carries power. It's the hand that carries preeminence. It's the hand that represents strength. My name is Benjamin, if you don't know my full name. And in Hebrew, my name means son of my right hand. Ben is son, Yemen is right hand. And that's what it means. It's, it's power, it's authority, it's you're the blessed son. So anyone, if any time in the Bible you see right and left-handed stuff, that's what's going on there, is the right hand is this power of preeminent, preeminence. And so Joseph wants his oldest son to get the blessing with the right hand. So Joseph puts Manasseh in his left hand to get him to Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim in his right hand to get it to Jacob. Uh, Ephraim. Ephraim with the left hand, and what Jacob does is he goes, whoop! Blind father giving the blessing to the younger son, not the older son. I feel like we've heard this story before. But the blessing that he says is beautiful. I love that in verse 15 it says he blessed Joseph, but that's not who he blesses. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And so what the text is kind of cluing us into is that Joseph is blessed because his sons get blessed. 
And Jacob recalls it's the God of Abraham, it's the God of Isaac, it's the God who's been his shepherd his whole life. Think about all of Jacob's life. Running up to Padanaran and fighting with Laban and fighting with Esau when he wasn't there and then coming back and God wrestling with him and giving him a limp, which is who the angel is here. If you remember that story, it's the Lord himself who fights Jacob and he wrestles with him all night so that now Jacob afterwards has this limp with his hip and he can't lead, he can't do, he can't trust in his own physical strength anymore because God said, that's not good enough, you need to trust in my strength. So he wounds Jacob to where he can't. And it's Jacob who says he redeemed me from all evil. And Jacob had a lot of evil. And he says, grow these boys. Bless these boys. Make them a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 17. So when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and he moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, but put your right hand on his hand. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. His offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, You, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. I I just love it when there's family tussles in the Bible because it makes me feel like my family's normal. Joseph looks up, and let's remember, Joseph has a lot of authority here. The only one greater than Joseph in Egypt is Pharaoh. And so Joseph looks, and he's like, Oh, gosh, Dad. You put your hand on the wrong one. And so he takes his hand and moves it to the other one's hand. And Jacob is like, I know, I know, but I didn't do it wrong. I may not be able to see physically with my eyes, but the Lord has given me some vision and seeing what's going to happen with both of these sons. The younger one is going to have far more success than the older one. Now, the older one's going to be successful. I'm not saying he's going to be bad. He's just not going to be as successful. He's not going to expand or have as many as Ephraim will. And so he blesses them. And outside of the first mention in this passage of Manasseh and Ephraim, the rest of the story, it's been flipped. Manasseh's the oldest, Ephraim's the youngest, and the rest of the story, it's been flipped. It's always Ephraim and Manasseh in the way that they're listed. And then verse 21. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you, and will bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Jacob has blessed Manasseh and Ephraim. And now he looks at Joseph and he's like, I'm about to die. This is going to happen. But there's this one little thing I want you to have. And it's kind of odd if we just step back and look at it. But, but Jacob's, it's not ever mentioned. Like we're like, oh, well, all of a sudden Jacob has this land. And he gives it to Joseph. He says, I, I got it from the Amorites with my sword, with my bow. I want it in a battle, but I want you to have this land. And for Joseph, it's this subtle tie back to the promised land. 
Jacob and the brothers have not been away from home that long, but Joseph has been away from home for a long time. And this is God's way of kind of saying, like, listen, Egypt isn't home. The land of Canaan is the home that I've promised you. That's the land in the covenant that, that I've given you. So here's this deed to this land that's yours. Don't forget where you're from. So we look at this story, and, and, and it's interesting to look at Jacob at the end of his life. And I find it really interesting to think about the moments, the, the things in Jacob's life that he recalls as he's on his deathbed. Not everybody gets these times. Death comes in a various form of ways, and sometimes it's much more quick than it is slow. But for Jacob, God has given him this chance to just, your life is ending, you know your life is ending, so recall back on what it is and then tie up all the loose ends that you need to tie up before you're taken. And I am, am, am drawn to the passage that Jacob quotes where he remembers the angel that, that when God popped his hip out of socket. He says, he's redeemed me from all evil. I mean, we can see and we can testify more fully than Jacob understood at the time what the Lord, who is our faithful shepherd, what is what Jacob calls him, redeems evil. Where we're standing on this side of the cross, we see this picture far more fully than Jacob could see it. We see the enormity and the true cost of God becoming our Redeemer. We see what it really costs God to become our kinsman who redeems us. That God's own Son leaves eternal, uh, leaves the eternal heaven. He leaves God's full and complete presence. God's full and complete blessing, perfection, to enter into a fallen and deprived world. Filled with sufferings and filled with evil. I mean, what you and I can see that Jacob couldn't see is that Jesus Christ exposes himself to hatred. He exposes himself to enmity that this world has. We see Jesus walk through and learn and and know how to trust God, the Father, in the darkest times. As well as the times that are good. We see Jesus receive a body, a physical body. That would experience some of the most grotesque forms of evil that we could imagine. Think about this. God put on flesh and then was whipped and beaten in that flesh. Had hands and feet that were pierced with nails. The flesh that he put on. Had a spear stabbed into the side that he put on himself. gave himself a heart that would be betrayed. The 
good shepherd takes the place of the errant sheep in order to rescue us errant sheep from the valley of the shadow of death. We see on the cross that in a way that Jacob could never understand how God was going to redeem evil for God's good purposes, we see on the cross that the Father turns from Christ and pours His wrath on Jesus, His Son. That wrath, that punishment for our sins, not Christ's sins, our sins. So that God can accomplish His eternal purposes and have a holy people who belong to Him forever. There's a lot of power in what Jacob says in verse 16. There's a lot that he's thinking about at the end of his life as he's pulling up strength just to talk to Joseph and to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, just pulling up, gathering his strength so that he can do those things one last time before he passes on. I think it's interesting that he calls God a shepherd who walked with him all the days of his life and would not abandon him now, even that he is dying. He knows that God's not abandoned him. My my mind jumps to Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Imagine it's scary going through the valley of the shadow of death. All other guides in life, all other saviors that we turn to abandon us at death. Not the Lord. We have a Redeemer who purchased our bondage to sin. Who purchased our life. By dying on the cross. <laughs> you recognize that that means that, that, that our souls belong to the Lord if we're believers? And that not even death can take them away from Him? The promise that God gave Jacob in his youth there's this this deeper and this richer uh, place that God is preparing for Jacob and that God's promising I will be your guide even through death into me forever Psalm 46 14 says that is this God our God forever and ever he will guide us forever do you know what the end of forever is with God there is no end God undertook and prepares a feast for Jacob and welcomes him into his house forever. That's the other half of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The reality is we are all dying. None of us know how long we have to live or when God will call us home. And I will tell people all the time, I have been extremely blessed in my life that the Lord has not kept death away from me. It's become a joke in our life. Like, if you're related to me, your time is coming quickly. I have no grandparents that are still alive. They're all gone. I've lost numerous uncles. Like I said earlier, I've lived longer than my dad, which is mind-blowing to me. 
haven't had a chance to, to distance myself from death. And God has blessed me this over and over by exposing this reality that we will all die and that there is, that it comes for all of us. That is our end. We can do whatever we want with our health. We can eat nothing but grass for the rest of your life and you will end in death. That's the way the Lord has it for us. But the other truth is, no one breathes and says, unless God says breathe. And no one dies until God says it's your time. So make no mistake. Just because God has not called you home yet does not mean that he will not. It is inescapable. Are you ready to meet that God? Do you have a testimony that that God is your shepherd and that God is your redeemer? Perhaps today is the day when he's calling you to enter into a relationship with him as a shepherd and as as your king. And my prayer would be that you would submit your heart to his sovereign call and bow before him in faith looking to what Christ has done. His righteousness is our hope. And if you're already trusting God, remember that He's a faithful shepherd who will redeem all evil. So this means that whatever circumstances that we have in life, the sins that others commit against us or the sins that we've committed that are bearing bitter fruit or, or the out-of-control aspects of our life that feel so painful are not actually out of control, but they're under God's sovereign control and they're not wasted. Yes, they're real, and yes, they're evil, and yes, there's pain, and yes, it hurts, and yes, those are valid and real things, but we don't have to pretend that those events aren't those things, while at the same time we can look to Christ and recognize that there's hope beyond those things. We live in an evil and a broken world, however, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus demonstrate that we serve a God who regularly brings glorious good news out of the deepest darkness and the ugliest evils that we could ever imagine. God died for our salvation and was resurrected again to show that he's the God of life and death and nothing is beyond him. Perfect healing comes out of painful sickness and resurrection life out of death itself. That's a faithful shepherd God who has committed himself to lead you until the day of your death and then welcome you into the glorious inheritance in Christ if we're believers in Jesus. It's in those moments that the evils that we felt, that the things that we don't understand, and and, and here's what I believe. I firmly believe that when we get to heaven, if we're believers, we don't become omniscient. We don't know everything in heaven. But we'll look at the resurrected Jesus. And recognize that all of the struggles that we had on this earth were but a momentary mist. And that following Christ was far more worth any struggle that we went through. Praise God that he is good. And praise God that he has not forgotten us. May we worship the Lord.
Let's pray. God, thank you for today. As we read a passage like this and we see Jacob on his his deathbed. God, I pray that you would stir within our hearts to imagine what those moments will look like for us. God, I pray that you would take our hearts and help us to to recognize, like Psalm 23 is a great psalm because it walks through what is one of the most scariest parts of our life, the valley of the shadow of death. God, I pray that this would be a reality for us that we would not just push off and that we would not just ignore and just try to live life and then it sneak upon us later, but rather, God, be something that you continually bring up in our hearts and in our lives because you're the God of life and you're the God of death. Nothing breathes until you say breathe and nothing dies until you say it's time. God, when things are scary, and things are hard and we don't understand them and there's just this distress that can well up within our hearts and in our souls. I pray that you would give us comfort in this. That your rod and that your staff would comfort us. And that we would lean into Jesus. God, for any unbelievers who are here this morning or hear this message, I pray that you would stir within them. Help them to know that death is not inevitable. But it's also not hopeless. God, for the believers who are here, I pray that you would help us to grow in you. To live lives that are not controlled by this world, God, but are free because we believe in you. Help us to live out the gospel call in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll work.